Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McCarty. Today we will be reading in Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit or are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, the na- so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as of are the works of the laws are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the books of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith.
Colossians chapter 3. We are going to begin today at verse 16, because we left off last week at verse 15. I told you last week that the words let the are not in the original Greek. The English phrase let the implies that it's a matter of your will. But what Paul wrote here is, as Christians, as the blood-bought, redeemed saints of God, since you are perfected in Christ, there are certain characteristics that are just simply going to be true of you. If you have the eternal Holy Spirit of truth abiding within you, there are certain things that are just going to become apparent in your life. Like the peace of God is going to rule in your hearts. That's where we left off last week. That the peace of God is going to rule in your heart so that you will have the peace that passes human understanding. You'll be able to navigate this crazy, stupid, sinful world with a sense of peace, with a sense of well-being because you know that the sovereign has indeed the whole world in his hand. He knows what he's doing. He planned it. He has a blueprint for all of human history, and he is busy working his plan, and that gives us peace. And so we who are aware of his word, we who understand what the Bible has to say to us, we get this sense of peace, and that peace remains with us. That peace abides with us. The peace of Christ then takes over and rules in our hearts since you know that I'm not just making up theological novelties here, Paul says, to which indeed you were called. You were called to have that kind of confidence, that kind of peace, because God the sovereign chose you since before the foundation of the world. Therefore, I can confidently state that if he has deposited his Holy Spirit in you, it's going to give you a sense of comfort and peace that you couldn't have any other way, and that's exactly what you were called to. So then at verse 16, he says, in the same way, the word of Christ richly dwells within you. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where you'll find that particular order of words, the word of Christ. That's a very distinct phrase that Paul uses at this moment. We know from the beginning of the Gospel of John that Jesus is referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that Jesus is referred to as the Logos, the speaking agency for the triunity of God. We know that he is the, he is the Word which demonstrates intelligence, He is all wisdom. So we know that this word logos is used for him. It's like a descriptor, a nickname for him. But in this particular phrase, what we read is about the word of Christ. In other words, the teaching of Christ. What did Jesus say? What is the doctrine of Christ? What are the words that Jesus left behind for us? All of those inclusively become the word of Christ. And so Paul says not only that the peace of Christ is going to take up residence and rulership in your heart, but part of the born-again change that's going to happen to you, part of that regenerative work that God is doing for you, includes you're going to have a hunger for the word of God that is unexplainable. If you look around at the world, if you look at your neighbors, if you look at your politicians, and please don't, but if you look at the world at large, you can tell that they only bring up the word of God when they can twist it in some way in order to make it suit their needs, their purposes. But to the Christian person, we know that our eternal salvation and our change of life, our regeneration, the born again aspect of our life 
is all God's doing through Christ, and we want to know more about that. And so we keep going back to the word. We keep going back to what did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach? What is the teaching of Jesus? What is the word of Christ? I need more of that. Everybody in this room has a TV. Everybody in this room has a radio in their car. Everybody in this room has access to a computer, even if it's just a phone in your pocket. Those are computers these days. Everybody has nonstop access to nonstop verbiage. There's people talking at us all the time, marketing us, selling us, instructing us, restricting us, telling us what we can and cannot do and what we got to do and telling us what to think. And they tell us what is the proper think and what's the approved think and what's the agreeable world think. There's constant verbiage coming at you all the time. Words and words and words and words. And none of those words that are coming at you from all those various different sources, none of those can save your soul. There's only one set of words that can do you any eternal good. Paul calls it the word of Christ. And so Paul's instruction here is that the word of Christ should richly not just dwell in you, but richly dwell in you. In other words, he recognizes that the word of Christ within you is a treasure. Here, I'll prove it to you. Do you know anybody who doesn't care about the word of Christ? You can think of somebody right now who doesn't care at all about the words of Christ. Because it's a treasure. It's a revealed thing. I know that there were years of my life where I could read the Bible, I owned a Bible, I would look at the Bible, and I couldn't make hide nor hair out of the Bible. And then one day God enlightened me, quickened me, opened my eyes, changed my heart, opened my ears so that suddenly this became the most precious thing I could think of. I don't care what you take away from me. I've lost so much in 66 years. I've lost a lot. And I lived through all of it. You get up and you go again. And you go, well, that was a good thing while I had it. And it's gone now. But I can't do without the word of Christ. I can't live without the word of Christ. I can't live eternally without the word of Christ. I can't survive day to day in this stupid world without Christ. I need the word of Christ. And so Paul says that this treasure is going to dwell with you. That word dwell in the Greek just happens to be a present imperative. In other words, it means... This is an instruction that it would dwell in you, which is why the translators put the let the at the beginning, because there is an imperative here from Paul. And the imperative is in the present tense. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. There's never a day where you wake up and say, that whole word of Christ thing, I'm good on that. I'm filled up with that till the rest of my life. I don't need to go back to the word of Christ. I'm good on that. Instead, the present imperative has this constancy to it, which is that the word of Christ must, in fact, dwell constantly within you. There's never a day, there's never a moment when you don't need the word of Christ. And so the word of Christ richly, in an imperative sense, dwells within you with all wisdom, and it's going to do two things. Now, I should point out again, just because the word Sophia is used here, since he mentions wisdom, that the Gnostics believed that they had all this hidden wisdom. Paul here points out that all actual wisdom is found in the word of Christ. If you want to understand what's really going on here on this planet and in eternity... The word of Christ. If you want to know how to survive this world, the word of Christ. If you want to know how you're going to get through another day when everything you care about gets taken away, the word of Christ. 
The word of Christ is the answer to absolutely everything in your life. And so, it's going to do two things because it contains all wisdom. It's going to teach you and it's going to admonish you. Teach you is just the standard word here, teaching, didaskalos. It, it just means to instruct you, to inform you, to bring you along in the discipline and the understanding of Christ and of the faith of Christ. But then it's also going to do something else. It's going to correct you. One of the hardest things to do when you're standing toe-to-toe with the Bible, the first time that you come in contact with what the Bible actually says, instead of what you think it says, instead of what you grew up believing it ought to say, instead of what your tradition has always told you it would say if you ever read it. When you actually find out what the Bible does say, one of the hardest things to do is to unlearn all the stuff you thought was true. And you start saying, oh, well, this is the word of truth. And it says this. And I, I never thought that before. I think the opposite of that. The example I use all the time is my grandmother who used to tell me when I was a young boy, well, whenever she wanted me to do something, whenever I wanted something, whenever I'd need something, Grandma, can you help me do this? She'd always say, the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible anywhere, but I grew up believing it. She clearly believed it. Turns out it's Benjamin Franklin. It's not even close to Christ. (laughs) But then you walk through your life carrying the assumption that if you ever cracked a Bible, you would find that, those words or that concept somewhere in there. And then you get to the Bible and you find out that what it actually says is, you're a dreadful sinner. You are a depraved, fallen sinner. And in fact, you can't help yourself. And God saves those who can't help themselves. Okay, that's the exact opposite of what I grew up hearing my grandmother recite over and over. So then what do I do? I've either got to say, well, Grandma said, or I've got to say, well, the Bible said. And at some point, you realize, I love you, Grandma, but nope. <laughs> Turns out the Bible says something completely different. So unlearning the things that you have always held to be true is one of the more difficult aspects of coming to grips with genuine biblical Christianity, but that's one of the things that the word of Christ dwelling within you does to you. It teaches you, but then it also admonishes you. The Greek word that is translated admonish here doesn't mean to be harsh. It doesn't mean to correct somebody in a mean way and say, you're wrong and I'm right, and What it means is to correct somebody in a spirit of gentleness. You're bringing somebody along, but you're doing it kindly. Well, the word of Christ does that. Because it is the word of the Lord who has always loved you. When it comes to teaching you, he's going to teach you what the truth is. And he's going to help you to unlearn the things that you have always thought were true. And that correction takes the form of everything from whom the Lord loves, he chastens, all the way to whom the Lord loves, he gently instructs because he likens us to sheep and he's the good shepherd and he guides us and he leads us and he loves us and he cares for us and therefore in eternal love he corrects us. And that's what the word of Christ does. When people ask what I do, and I say I'm a, I'm a preacher, they get it in their head that that means I'm one of those guys. And they all know those guys. And they've all had experience with those guys. And I, I feel like I have to qualify it anymore and say I'm a preacher, but not one of those. <laughs> what I do is I 
teach God's Word. What I do is just drive people back to the Word of God over and over again. I don't tell people that I have any authority at all. The Word of God has authority. I can teach you what it says, but God has to enlighten you for it to really dwell within you, for it really to take up residence within you, for it to change you from within. I can't do that. I can yell at you all day long, and you won't change a whit. If God changes you, he's going to do it according to his word. And so, Paul writes, let the word of Christ, like a treasure, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, not that Gnostic wisdom, but the wisdom of eternity that the one who came to us from eternity would actually know. Jesus talked about heaven like it was his living room. He knew it like he knew the back of his hand. He talked about heaven because that's his eternal home. He knows what it's about. He knows what it's like. And so he has a wisdom that the world just cannot have, that humanistic philosophy cannot have, that Gnostic philosophy cannot have. The genuine understanding and wisdom that he has, that he has given you through his word, teaches you and instructs you admonishes you, corrects you. And then that teaching and that admonishing becomes something that we collectively as the body do. And he says the way that we do that, the way that we admonish one another, the way that we instruct one another, the way that we teach one another, guide one another, come alongside one another, encourage one another, the way that we do that here is through psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs. I just see that as sort of axiomatic. Here's one thing I know about genuinely Christian people. If the word of God, if the word of Christ is dwelling in your heart, you will find yourself all by yourself in the middle of the day, whether you're vacuuming or whether you're fixing your car, you will find yourself singing to God. Just you can't help it. It's in your heart. It just wells up and you just, you just praise God. You just make a joyful noise. You can't help but worship the God who has saved you. And one of the forms that that worship takes is just singing. And so he says, the teaching and the admonishing that goes on in the church and between one another includes going back to the Psalms. The psalms originally were sung. The psalms originally were musical. And when I say sung, I don't mean like with a melody. Oh, listen to David, go. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. Good, I got you back. It was a recitation the same way that the Song of Solomon is a recitation. It wasn't set to melody because recitations are easy to remember. And so the psalms are written in a way where they would have musical accompaniment. And David and his musicians and the ministers within the temple, they would recite these things over and over until they became part of your collective memory. There's not a person in this room who, if I say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know instantly, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's from the Psalms. That's, that's, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, I shall not want. Okay, well, that's what Paul is talking about here. Going back to the musical aspects, the recitation aspects of the word of God and reciting it over and over. As much as you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Are you sick of hearing that yet? No, you still love to hear it, don't you? Because it reminds you of the word of Christ. It reminds you of the God who saved you. It reminds you of his extreme love and kindness and grace. And you never get tired of it. You can get tired of any other songs. I could start singing Baby Shark right now. (laughs) And every one of you would stone me... (laughs) for putting it in your head again. 
We get sick of songs. There were songs that I used to really like, really like. I don't care anymore. It comes on the radio. I don't care. And yet the songs that remind me of God, the psalms that speak of God, the the psalms that tell me over and over of God's love for me, the psalms, the messianic psalms that speak of the forthcoming Christ. You can see why Paul here would combine the word of Christ with reciting the psalms because they were about Christ. They reminded you of Christ. And then in hymns, we sing hymns here at GCA. I like hymns because they are the unifying language of the history of the church. I like the fact that the history of the church is reflected in the hymns. But then also, spiritual songs here at GCA in the coming weeks and months. We've been talking about what can we do musically? How do we expand our horizons? You'll see that in the coming weeks. I think you're going to like it. And all those songs that bring us that sense of worship and joy and unity, the songs that remind us of who we are, who we used to be, and what God did for us. Well, Paul says all of that is part of the wisdom of Christ and the word of Christ that is teaching us and is also correcting us as we talk to one another, as we come alongside each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. It's one of the best reasons to break out in song toward God. It's because you're thankful. If you can't think of a good hymn at any good moment, just start singing, thank you. Just thank you, God. Verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word and deed, he's not just talking about within the church. It's really easy here within the church, here with the saints, it's really easy for us to put on that good veneer of being happy, thankful, grateful saints. But Paul doesn't leave it at just what you do within the church. He says whatever you do. Whatever you do, and not just what you do, whatever you say, whatever language you use with other people, however you talk to other people, there are certain ways that you ought to be because you're Christian, because you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ on the planet, which is why Paul would leave imperatives like, don't let any corrupt, filthy communication come out of your mouth, because that's not fitting for the saints. If you look down in chapter 4 for a minute, there's this interesting phrase. Verse 6 of chapter 4. Let your speech always be with grace. Okay, so a moment ago Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed. So whatever you're saying, whenever you're talking, whenever your lips are moving, make sure first off, that you're doing it in the name, in the authority of Jesus Christ. And secondly, make sure that it's with grace, seasoned with grace. And in fact, then he draws the equation where he says, uh, as it were, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to respond to every person. Really, really interesting phrase, seasoned with salt. Because salt was such a precious commodity in the first century, because it was used, as Jesus said, it's thrown on the dung pile. It it keeps down the the smell of the dung pile. But it also is a preservative, and you can also use it to salt meat. Uh, You even find it when uh, Ezekiel is talking about you were a baby, and you were left in a field, and you were unwashed and unsalted. 
So salt is a preservative, and in the Middle East it was very important because they didn't have refrigerators and microwaves. He says, use that preservative sense in the way you talk. Make sure that the way you speak to people is full of grace. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. In other words, preserve it and make sure that you have the proper words the proper intelligence, the proper language for each individual person that you talk to. You're going to talk to some people who are very serious. I told you a story at the beginning of today about the young boy who came over to my house yesterday. Even though it would have been fine, I could have seasoned it with grace, but I could have been lighthearted, and that would have been completely inappropriate. Instead, it was a time to be empathetic, Instead, it was a time to be caring and come alongside him. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you know how you should respond to every person. Whatever conversation you're in, with a co-worker, with a neighbor, with somebody else within the church, it should be gracious speech, reflecting the grace of God through Jesus Christ, but also appropriate for the moment. And you're only going to know how to do that if you have the wisdom and the mind of Christ so that whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you say, that you're able to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've told you before, the reference to the word name here means the authority of Jesus. You don't have the authority to go to a righteous, holy God. Because you're you. You're a sinner. You're depraved. You don't have the ability to burst into his presence and talk to him. Which is why we are instructed to pray in Jesus' name. By his authority. He's the one who has intervened to make it okay between God and us. Therefore... We can pray by his authority because he has opened the passageway for us to communicate with God. So we do everything, baptism, we do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That means by the authority of. Well, same thing here. Whatever it is you do, in word or deed, do all under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Lord. Have I emphasized the word Lord yet? Look, if he is your Lord, you're a slave to him. You're a bondservant to him. And he, through his word, just gave you instruction of how to be and how to talk and what to do at all times As an emissary of Christ in this world, how should you conduct yourself so that you are obviously different than this world? So that people will come to you and inquire about the hope that is within you. So that you're ready to give an answer, to give a defense to everyone who does inquire about that hope that is within you. They're only going to inquire if they see that you're just different. How do you have that kind of hope? How do you have that kind of peace? How do you have that kind of confidence in the midst of this decaying world? Well, it's going to be because you don't act like the world and whatever you do and whatever you say is seasoned with grace the same way that you would season your food with salt, the same way you season your speech with the grace of Christ. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it through the authority of your Lord, Jesus Christ giving thanks through him to God the Father. So even your thankfulness to God has to be through him. He's the one who paved the way. He's the one who made it okay between you and God so that you could pray to God. And even your ability to be thankful to God, God's not going to accept it except that it comes through Christ. And then because Christ has given you the ability to do it and you are doing it by his authority, you don't only go to God praying for what you want and what you need, you go and you're thankful to him. 
look how important that phrase is. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So there's a theme developing here, which is whatever it is you're doing, be thankful. That should be the hallmark of your Christian walk. If you have been instructed, if you have been corrected, if you have been admonished by the word of Christ, it will make you thankful. Amen. It will become part of who you are. It will become a characteristic of who you are, that you're grateful. We have so much. And I could list the stuff we have. I got stuff. I got so much stuff. On my birthday, earlier in the month, my kids said, what can I get you? And I said, nothing. I have everything. I don't need anything. Don't get me anything. You all figured out to get me chocolate. (laughs) I have everything I need. But that's not why I'm thankful. Everybody in this room has clothes on their back. Thank goodness. Everybody today had something to eat. Everybody in this room knows their own name. Everybody in this room has so much. That's not why we're thankful. We're really thankful in the end because the word of Christ has instructed us and corrected us. And the authority of Christ is carrying us through this lifetime and taking us to the eternity that our ever-loving God prepared for us before the foundation of the world. How do I not be thankful? I had nothing to do with that. That was grace and grace and more grace and grace upon grace. And he decided to do all of that despite the fact that I'm so me-ish that I'm sick of me. And yet he did that for me? Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. So Paul puts thankfulness in every single category when talking about what a Christian is and how a Christian behaves. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in action, in deed, do it all under the authority in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks through Christ to God the Father. Turn back to Ephesians for a moment, if you would, since this is technically a study of the book of Colossians and Ephesians, and we've already taught verse by verse through Ephesians, and so this language should sound familiar to you. Chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Well, it starts with a therefore, and I think you know we can't start anything on a therefore. Start on verse 11. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's the only real light. And the light exposes us, and it exposes our sins, and it exposes the works of darkness that make up this world. So awake, sleeper, 
and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men. What did we just read? Christ was the wisdom. The word of Christ is where we find the wisdom to know how we should behave. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How are you going to understand what the will of the Lord is? His word. His word. He has to tell you. That's why Paul puts so much emphasis on the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, both instructing and admonishing you, so that you'll understand what the will of the Lord is. And if you don't understand what the will of the Lord is, notice Paul says, you're a fool. You can know all the stuff this world has to offer. You can have all the stuff this world has to offer. You're just an enormous, well-to-do fool. Because eternally, you got nothing. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even our Father, and be subject to one another in the reverence, in the fear of Christ. Now, why did I go back and read that, considering that it's pretty much the same thing that the book of Colossians says? Because the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians were written at the same time, carried by the same messenger. And obviously, Paul finished one of the letters, and it was so vital that he passed this thinking on, this attitude, this Christian view of the world. It was so important to him that he wrote the same thing in both letters. He's trying to tell you something. He's making sure that it's not missed. He's making sure that the whole of the church knows it. At the end of the book of Colossians, he's going to say, make sure that this letter that I've written to you, Colossians, make sure to share it with Laodicea. Make sure that they get to read it. Oh, and the letter I wrote to Laodicea, which as I told you way back when, when we were introducing the book of Ephesians, that letter to Laodicea is probably the Ephesian letter. And so he says, make sure you read the letter that I wrote to Laodicea and have them read this letter. He's saying the same thing to both churches, the thankfulness, obedience to Christ who is your Lord and Master, singing to him through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and doing all of that through thanksgiving and that that applies to absolutely everything in your life, every part of your life, every corner of your life, everything that you do in word and in deed all falls under the heading of Christ. Last week I told you that I heard at a conference an excellent presentation on Christianity and race. And I told you that the premise that was presented was that Christ has to be the top category and everything else flows from that. And if you put anything, including race, particularly race, if you put that above Christ and then as Christians you divide over race because race is more important than Christ, then you have division and schism within the church based on race. You can do that with money. And you end up with churches of poor people and churches of rich people because the rich people don't want to hobnob with the poor people because they forgot to keep Christ as the premier category. And they started using something else as the primary thing. Christ is always the first thing in everything. Within his church, he is the first thing within everything. And because you're part of his church, because you're part of his body, because you are the bride of Christ, then he can say everything in you, every aspect of you, 
Everything that makes up you all falls under the heading of your Lord and Master Christ. Therefore, whatever you do, however you talk, however you conduct yourself, Christ is primary and everything else flows from that, including your thankfulness to God, which must be done through him. That's how important he is to your entire life and your entire salvation and your entire eternity. He becomes the one central treasure that makes this life make sense. You get it? In the book of Ephesians, right after Paul said to sing in spiritual songs to each other, right behind that, he got into wives be subject to your husbands. He did it in the book of Ephesians, and he does it here in the book of Colossians. It's the exact same order. It's almost like he was copying off his own crib notes. It's like, well, this is important stuff. I got to keep going. I am convinced that the next things that Paul is going to say about being subject to one another falls under the big heading of whatever you do in word or deed, do it through Christ. And if you take away the through Christ, by Christ, Christ is the primary category, if you remove that from this conversation, what you end up with is language that makes you rebel and makes you say, no, I'm not going to be like that. No, I'm not. What? Subject myself. What? Be obedient to him or her? No. Be obedient to my master? No. Paul's going to say, and you masters, be good to your slaves. No. That's just a no. Until you add everything you do. Everything you say, do it because of Christ, who is your Lord and Master. And because of what he has done for you and your obedience to him, then behave yourself in the way that God instructs because this is the way that life actually works. I mean, actually works according to the plan of God, to the purpose of God. Look, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. That's how he made them, male and female. Time goes by. Now you can choose your gender. Okay, what happened? Well, the world went so far afield of what God actually says that now we have nothing but confusion reigning in the world when it comes to questions of gender. The CDC just recently changed its language from women to childbearing people because, you know, they have to admit that in this genderless world, men can get pregnant. It's crazy talk. It's stupid talk. I don't know about any of you men. I'm talking to the men in the room. Women, tune out. I don't know about the rest of you, but me personally, I can tell you with great confidence, I don't have a womb. Therefore, since that's a biological reality, I can't have a baby. But the world has gone so far astray that they've forgotten how the world works. And the way the world works is male and female, man and woman. Okay, so God has told us how the world works and told us how humanity works. And then humanity in their sinfulness deny what God says, and now the world doesn't work. See what I'm saying? Paul is about to recite, which he did in Ephesians and he does in Colossians. He's going to recite how the world best works according to God's plan. We'll only get to the first couple today because I'm, I see the clock. The guy who stood up here at the beginning of today was way too long-winded. For the people on the internet, that was me. I wasn't insulting anybody. Go back to Genesis 3.16. I'm, I'm going to prove this to you because I just quoted from Genesis the fact that there was male and female, and that's how we made them. Go back to the book of Genesis After the woman, Eve, was convinced by Satan, the serpent, to eat from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, God then hands out punishments to each of them for the fact that they were all in rebellion against him. 
So in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity against us between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We all read that and say, yeah, that's right. That's just. That's appropriate. Good. God's doing all the right things. He's saying all the right things. I agree. I agree. I agree. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Can I get a witness? There's pain in childbirth now. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And here is part of the punishment for her disobedience. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay, do you think Eve liked that idea at that moment? Because remember, this is God's response to the fact that she had just talked her husband into betraying God. And so then God says, because you're the one who took the fruit, because you're the one that was deceived by Satan, and then you talked your husband into it, where you were equals now you are going to be subject to the desire of your husband and he shall have the rule over you. And ever since Eve, women have not liked that idea. And I get it. Of course you don't like that idea. Jennifer Young, years ago, I'm not pointing her out as somebody who really doesn't like that idea. Yeah. Jennifer Young... <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Young years ago used a phrase that I've just always appreciated and have used frequently. She said, all of us women still have eveness about us. You still have that rebellious Eve thing going on within you. I'm so glad the women are nodding. So far, no woman has rebelled and run out the door. You, you just, you have that within you. Okay, so here's how the world works. Despite the fact that you may not like it, it's still the way that God has designed it. It's still the way that God has purposed it. And God has said all the way back in Genesis how it's going to be. And so now thousands of years have passed. And just like we don't know what gender is anymore, we don't know what genuine submission to one another is anymore. We don't know what voluntary submission is. We don't know what actual humility is anymore. We don't understand the plan of God, the design of God, or that the world works better when we do the plan of God. That's proven by the whole Old Testament. God laid out, okay, here are my rules, here's my plan, here's my law, Go, Israel. And they didn't do it because human beings are naturally rebellious and sinful. And they don't like to be told what to do. That's just natural. That's why Paul has to go back and repeat these things and say, look, I know you all don't like this. But this is what is good for you. I know your rebellion. I know your hard hearts. I'm not just talking to women when I say all that. Because in a moment, he's going to talk about slaves and masters. He's going to talk about husbands. He's going to talk about children. He's going to talk about all categories of people. And he's going to say, I know you don't like this. I know it's not natural to you. I know this isn't what pleases your flesh. I know that you rebel against this. Which is why I have to keep telling you that God says, because we're so quick to forget what God says. And so if we have the mind of Christ, if we've been instructed and directed by Christ, if we've been admonished and corrected by Christ, and then we do everything, whatever, in word and deed, we do all of it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ while giving thanks to the Father through Christ, well, that is the only way that rebellious people like us are going to accept the instruction and correction that tells us to submit ourselves because our pride won't let us do that. Understand that? And so even though he began with husbands and wives, if he had just said that and then moved on, then you'd have every right to say, well, that's awfully sexist. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So again, in the Lord. Is the world in the Lord? 
Does the world recognize Christ as Lord? Well, then it's no wonder they disobey. It's no wonder they're in confusion. It's no wonder that they satiate their flesh and rebel against God's word and the way that God created the whole of the world. The way that he created human beings. The world works best if you just follow the way God designed it and the way God instructs. But the world is not recognizing the lordship of Christ. You're being instructed and admonished by the word of Christ. But the world is not. So it's not surprising that the world has no idea what gender is. Of course they don't. It's why the world doesn't know what marriage is. It's why the world, the stupid world, the sinful world, the idiotic world. Have I used enough adjectives? I could go on. It's why the completely depraved, rebellious, ugly, insane world thinks it's okay to kill babies. That's insane. When you read in the Bible that babies are a gift from God and that a truly blessed man has a quiver full of them. A blessing from God. Let's just start killing the babies and then let's claim that it's a a right. I have the right to do that because the world doesn't care what the word of God says. The world is not instructed by the word of Christ. The world is in rebellion against God. That's why the world doesn't care that God created one man and one woman, that marriage is defined by the Bible. Instead, the rebellious world that isn't instructed by Christ is going to define marriage any way they want. The word of God doesn't matter. The instruction of God doesn't matter. But to us, it's precious. It's a treasure. We hang on to it. That's why he can say, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. If you say you're in the Lord, if you say he's your Lord and master, then it is fitting that you behave yourself in a way that is appropriate for Christians. And so... Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, you're not off the hook. And in fact, the book of Ephesians goes into more detail than the book of Colossians does, but we're not going to go back and review that for sake of time and for the sake of the fact that we've already taught through it in detail and just go a few messages early in this series and you can hear it. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be embittered against them. Why? does Paul have to instruct men not to be embittered against their wives? Because that's our nature. That's what we're like. That's part of our fleshly rebellion. We're so egocentric as men. And all you men, you tell me if I'm lying. You, say, you tell me if I say any one word that's it's not what really beats in your heart. We fleshly men, we're so full of ego. We're so full of pride. We're so full of dig me. That even our wives are supposed to dig me. And so Paul instructs husbands, love your wives. In the book of Ephesians, he says, like Christ loved the church. Use that as your example. The way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that's the way that you're to love your wife. And your natural tendency, your natural fleshly tendency is going to be to become tired of her, to become embittered toward her at this moment I can see it in the eyes of many men who are like Jim stop it don't tell them that Paul has to instruct because it's not our natural character that's why he has to say wives be subject to your husbands because that's not your natural character that's why he has to say men don't be embittered toward your wife because that's not your natural character Wildness, disobedience beats in the heart of children. The Bible even says that. Children come out of the womb speaking lies. And wildness, disobedience, rebellion beats in the heart of a child. But the rod of correction drives it far from them. Children, says verse 20, be obedient to your parents in all things. James, I'm talking to you. I just thought I'd point that out. Children, be obedient to your parents in everything. Everything because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Again, he keeps bringing it back to, if he is indeed your Lord, then this is the way you should behave because this is the way that it actually works. 
that husbands love their wives, and wives are supportive and subject to husbands, and that the children are subject to their parents. This is the way that the family unit works. Anybody here ever had a truly rebellious child? It will break your heart. It will tear up your house. Nothing else is okay if you've got a rebellious child that leaves the house, who never communicates with you, you don't know where they are and you don't know what they're doing, that will kill you. Slow motion death. And so, since it is the natural instinct of fleshly children to be disobedient to their parents, and boy, don't we see that in the world. Advertising and marketing is steered right toward the kids. And we are represented in television and too many movies as, as just being the foolish addendum to a family. But who really knows stuff? Who comes up with the quips? Who's always right there on top of it? The kids! It's always the kids. They're not being obedient to their parents. Our kids are being systematically taught by the world how to be disobedient to parents. And so Paul has to say, look in the Lord. Be obedient to your parents. Why? Because that's not what you're actually like in your flesh. Now, I don't have time to go into the next several verses that start with slaves in all things. Obey those who are your masters. Chapter 4 begins, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Paul always takes it back to Christ as the preeminent one over everything. And if you are taught, if you are instructed, if you are admonished in the word of Christ, then you're going to have a change of heart and mind and character and behavior. And it's not going to be like the world. It's not going to be like the rebellious world. Are we ever going to get perfect in all these instructions? No. But we're certainly not going to be what we used to be. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't know that good marriages are exactly what Paul just described. It's a good marriage. It's a good family, exactly what Paul just described. He's going to get into slaves and masters, which is the two-tiered Roman society. Everybody was either a free man or a slave. So he's going to take it outside the family and outside the church and say that the whole society works best when you do it God's way. Because you realize that you have a master and that Christ is your Lord and master and that you're to be obedient to him. And because of your obedience to him, you are then subject to one another. And in that way, you can teach one another and admonish one another and sing with one another and encourage one another because the one anotherness of Christianity is the way it's meant to work, which is why we read so much about unity. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So don't isolate that part of Colossians or Ephesians. Don't isolate that and say, oh, look what Paul said. I don't like that thing. He's a sexist. Look at the big picture. The big picture is you either belong to Christ or you belong to this world. You either belong to Christ or you're walking after the prince of the power of the air. You either know what you're doing or you are walking around in utter confusion. And the only way you can find sanity in your mind is to be taught and instructed and admonished by the word of Christ. It's the only thing that can do it for you. So, as I keep saying, the people of God are not offended by the word of God. It's good instruction. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.